from the celebratory studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another Elf on the Shelf episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. Need a little bit of a brotherly shove to get into the holiday spirit? I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll deliver a horticultural twist on an old Christmas tale, a fanciful story in which a gardener gets the best of her garden gnome, a new book celebrating flowers that delight after dark, and tips on how to perennialize your holiday plants. And maybe a couple of your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and dazzlingly decadent decorations. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than old St. Nick ruining your roof right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to a hopefully festive edition of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mary Mike McGrath. And we're going to try to have a little Christmas celebration today, something we try to do every year. I'm going to start out by reading a gardener's Christmas poem. Uh, this poem is by Marianne Benetti, a prominent Washington State gardener and longtime friend of Green Prince which is a magazine that I have been writing for for many decades and in which this poem first appeared. You'll find more information on Mary Ann at B-I-N-N-E-T-T-I-G-A-R-D-E-N. That's BenettiGarden.com. Um, you can learn more about Green Prince, the Weeders Digest, at greenprince.com. All right, this is from uh, a couple of years back, but I've always had it in the back of my head uh, to use on a holiday show. So here we go with a Gardener's Christmas poem by Marianne Benetti. "'Twas the week before Christmas, and all through the yard. Not a gift was given, not even a card. The tools were all hung in the carport with care, with hopes that St. Nicholas soon would repair. That shovel with blade all rusty and cracked, the pitchfork still shiny, but a handle it lacked. When out on my lawn, all brown and abused, I could see poor Santa looking confused. No list had been left for Santa to see. No gardening gifts were under the tree. Ah, uh, but wait, there's still time. It's not Christmas yet. And gardening gifts are the quickest to get. You can forget the silk tie, the fluffy new sweater. Give something to make the garden grow better. 
if fragrance is sought, forget French perfume. It's a pile of manure that makes gardeners swoon. Give night crawlers, not nightgowns, the type of hose that gives water. Anything else is not worth the bother. Give a great gift that digs in the dirt. It's better than any designer brand shirt. Now look, quick at Santa, for under his glove, he's hiding a green thumb. His knees are so dirty, his back how it aches. His boots stomp on slugs. He gives them no breaks. The guy only works winter, so you can surely see why the rest of the year it's a gardening high. Elves plant in the spring, pull weeds all summer. In fall they harvest, but winter's a bummer. And so Christmas gives Santa part-time employment till spring when the blooms are his real-life enjoyment. So ask the big guy for garden gifts this year. Seeds, plants, and tools, Santa holds them all dear. Malls may be crowded with vendors hawking their wares, but visit a nursery. Stress-free shopping is there. Now Santa's flown off to the nursery he goes, and his voice fills the night with loud ho-ho-ho-hoes. Again, this poem was originally published in 2020 in Green Prince, the Weeder's Digest. And of course, all Santa's hoes are spelled H-O-E. Santa works all day in his workshop Making a lot of games and toys Then one day he hops in his sleigh To bring them to the girls and boys Santa's just as nice as he could be There's just one thing that worries me Doesn't snow on Christmas How's fat ass gonna use that sleigh? In case of rain Would there be a train That'll speed him on his way? If it doesn't snow this Christmas How's fat ass get around to us? Say he breaks down on his way to town Would they let him use a bus? I sent him a nice long letter I hope it's not in vain I really would feel much better If the fat flew a plane Now they say he got a reindeer For the sleigh he's driving here But how we go if it doesn't snow on Christmas this year? long letter and I hope it's not in vain I really would feel much better flew a plane now they say he got a reindeer for the sleigh he's driving here but we go if it doesn't snow on Christmas this year all right I got a treat for you listen to these kids are they great? Beautiful, beautiful. 
time for me to take a little break and remind everybody out there to keep the water holder under your live Christmas tree full to the brim, lest you do the Lego dance with evergreen needles. But don't go checking that container just yet, because we'll be right back to discuss a new book celebrating plants that delight after dark. I'm delightful Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Coming up later in the show, a very special story that I think is kind of festive, plus the question of the week in which we will prepare you to perennialize your holiday plants. They don't have to be one-shot wonders. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. But now it is time for our very special guest, uh, Urema Osofsky, who is the author of the brand-new book, Moon Garden, A Guide to Creating an Evening Oasis. Urema, uh, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being had. Now, there's a lot to do in your book, a lot to get to, I should say. Um, We have not really covered the idea of um, nighttime gardens, the scents, the flowers um, that are only around during the evening. And I think this is very appropriate for the season as it can give people some time to prepare and look outside and say, this would be a nice spot uh, for a moon garden, an evening garden, um, where we could sit out and watch the flowers open and inhale the scents that you just can't get during the day, right? Right, absolutely. One of the first things in your book and one of the first things I noticed is the concept of forest bathing. Um, We can't repeat often enough that being in nature lowers your blood pressure, improves your mood, gives you stronger fingernails. It just does everything possible for you. Um, But I was unfamiliar with the term forest bathing. Uh, tell us a little bit. Well, it's a term. It comes from Japan. It's um, In Japanese, it's called shinrin-yoku. And what it means is letting nature into your body through the five senses of seeing, hearing, 
touching, smelling, and tasting. Um, and it's essentially about how it's very restorative to reconnect with the land, um, walking barefoot on the earth, immersing yourself in the forest. Um, and my understanding is that in Japan, it's a big part of the tourist industry. Oh, yeah. Which I, is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, those cultures uh, are much more adept at appreciating nature and being in the moment. Um, I got into this business to teach people how to uh, grow a food garden without chemicals. And a lot of times you get distracted by reality. You know, you got to solve this. You got to do this. You got to, you know, keep an eye on your plants. And I love the idea that, okay, so over on the sunny side of your house or wherever you've got this working garden, um, but especially the way my house is divided, on the other side of the house I got um, some room out front that would be perfect for this where I wouldn't be working, where I would be out there enjoying. Um, and I've been realizing more over this year uh, that I have neglected that and I'm dedicating myself uh, to just being in nature more often. And I, I hope our listeners are too. And um, this is certainly one path uh, to get you excited about doing that. Right. It can be it can be really easy to get lost in all of the, the chores and the errands in your garden and just enjoying it can feel like a luxury. But um, to be able to enjoy it in the evening is an opportunity that you can allow yourself once the, the chores and the workday is over. Um, and that can start as early, you know, as dusk. Um, depending on what time of night you want to spend time in your garden. And then there are different plants that you can plant in that garden that will open their flowers at different times of night. Right. Even though the work week, the work schedule has changed dramatically for so many of us, uh, you point out in the book, we have a different mindset during the day. You know, it's time to get stuff done. We got to do this. We got to. We can't be lazy. Can't be moping around. Um, but what an antidote to that would be to have a garden that your next checkbox on the schedule is to go out and enjoy, to just remind right, yourself how to relax. Right, and there are so many different things you could do. In the garden, um, you could meditate, you can journal, you can host a party with your friends and family, um, depending on how, you know, you see yourself relaxing, you can create that space to cater to that. Um, and I would add to that, um, you could also just be there. Right. So I'm going to skip ahead in the book uh, to evening pollinators. You really do cover all aspects of a nighttime garden. 
um, not only the plants that will delight you in the evening, uh, but the different types of creatures you're going to attract. It's not going to be bees and butterflies, as you point out. Um, I mean, most, am I correct? Most, if not like really most, of night-blooming flowers are pollinated by moths? Yes, they are. Um, moths pollinate most of the night-blooming flowers, as do bats. Um, those are the two main pollinators at night. Yeah, I had but beetles as well. And beetles, right? Um, I mm-hmm. had I had to laugh when I read um, that part of your book um, because the first thing that occurred to me is, oh no, the bats are going to eat the moths. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there is this old, uh, since disregarded or discredited idea that uh, bats eat a lot of mosquitoes. Um, And it's unfortunate in two ways. First, you know, it's unfortunate that they don't. But I don't really want to talk about it that much because it it helps people uh, appreciate bats in the environment. But most of their diet, because, you know, they're like hummingbirds to some degree. They're always flapping around. They have a high metabolism they're looking for big, fat, night-flying moths. Mm, that's a good point. Sorry about um, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, the ones that are showing up in your night garden might be the ones that are uh, attracted to the flowers. Yeah, um, but they're there for the moths as well. I think the, um, quote, answer Uh, would be to make sure everything in your garden is organic. You do have a water source like that you recommend. We're going to get to that in a second. And, um, you know, make sure you have enough moths uh, to satisfy your flowers and your bats. Absolutely. Um, Now, I'm going to lose my place here, but I'm just going to, you know, I've got like a million sticky notes in your book. Um, Let's get to the water because I'm going to make you insanely jealous. Um, You, you live in Brooklyn, right? But you Mm -hmm. design moon gardens for all over the country. Um, I, I live in Brooklyn and my garden design practice is mostly in Brooklyn and Manhattan, um, as well as outside of the city. But um, I, I have not actually designed moon gardens all over the country. I have done one for my sister in Santa Cruz, though. Um, and that one is lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that jumped out at me that you devote um, a big section uh, to this Santa Cruz garden. Um which makes sense because we have to warn people a lot of the best night blooming fragrant plants are um, not hardy in the mid Atlantic or the Northeast. Um, some of them are, are rated for zones that I don't even think we have. I think you got to go to Hawaii um, to grow them year round, but a lot of them are zone eight. And above. So when we get to the particular flowers, I want to make sure we concentrate 
uh, to a large degree on the ones that you can recommend um, for your locals, so to speak. But I don't want to sure. I don't want to distract myself too much. If we start going down 16 trails, you're going to have to come get me with a dog or something. Um, <laughs> what I was about to say is I am blessed with a stream that runs right alongside my house. And I could only think of it um, when I read uh, your writings about water and the different ways you can incorporate that into your moon garden. And as you may know, there is nothing better than the days after a heavy rain when that stream is just... Uh, a musical orchestra all its own. And it is also important to birds, butterflies, moths. Um, a lot of creatures need to drink, and they're going to set up housekeeping near water. Yeah, it's a totally dream feature to have in your moon garden. Um, and that sound of trickling water is so soothing, um, and it really... It really brings a level of serenity to the garden that is hard to beat. Um, so that's amazing that you have a stream. Um, in the book, I do mention that if you aren't lucky enough to have one, you can um, opt for a fountain with a circulating pump to mimic that sound of trickling water. Um, and you can also use gal uh, galvanized tubs as tiny little reflecting pools um, as a really sort of cheap way to do it. Um, and if you have a pond, then there are some night blooming plants that you could also grow in your pond. And then you get frogs and toads as well. Right. So I want to, uh, first of all, my choice would be a circulating fountain with a pump simply because you get so much more when you can hear the water in addition to seeing it that I think it's more soothing to be near running water than it is to be in the most beautiful untouched forest. I completely agree. It is so relaxing um, and a large part of the moon garden is waking up all of your senses. It relies so much less on um, your visual experience and more on fragrance and sound. So it's especially important at night. You could be out there with your eyes closed. Exactly. Or again, if you're a topic we haven't covered but used to cover quite a bit, is for the visually impaired. I mean, this is like their garden on a stick. It, you know, they can probably get more out of it than a sighted person. Right, absolutely. And there are so many um, way, there are so many night blooming plants that are very fragrant and plants that are fragrant both day and night that you can incorporate into your moon garden, as well as silver foliage plants that have a very tactile texture. So it can be as much of a feeling garden as it is a smelling garden. Plants like lamb's ear are just so soft to the touch, so relaxing, 
um, and also more fine textured plants like Amsonia to be able to run your fingers through the foliage is infinitely relaxing in my opinion. And I, I would add to the list common mullen, which has enormous leaves. It's like six feet high and they are very lamb's ear touchable. And then you get very bright sulfur-colored flowers at the top. So I would think there would even be not only a touchable, but a nice visual aspect in a moon garden. Absolutely. Yellow flowers and white flowers, along with the silver foliage from plants like, like that one and lamb's ear, are all very vibrant at night, uh, especially white flowers pop the most in the dark and have the most luminescence so um so those are the that's the color palette that you want to really work within when you're designing a night garden one thing i'll add um is that you mention refreshing the water if it's still uh to prevent mosquitoes there is an organic uh substance for that called BTI, Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis, which sounds complicated, but you'll find it in any hardware store or garden center in the form of granules or dunks. And you just uh, throw a dunk into a pond or shake some granules into your galvanized tub and adult mosquitoes will not be killed but the eggs the females lay will not be able to progress to adulthood. And in the meantime, it touches nothing else. You know, frogs, toads, birds, even dogs can come and uh, lap at the water. And of course, if you have a dog, it will come and lap at the water. That's amazing. Yeah, because again, mosquitoes, thats you can think of that as one slight negative of a nighttime garden. Uh, but ever since I learned about BTI, I deliberately put out standing water that I've treated with the granules, and I haven't been bitten by a mosquito near my house in 20 years. That's incredible. Well, there's no, what's, what's going to destroy the serenity uh, faster than the sound of a slap? Right, absolutely. Now, Vitronella candles yeah, could also help a be, little. Before we leave water, um, you mention uh, water lilies and lotuses. Now, there is an area that I visit frequently in southern Virginia along the coast, the eastern shore, where they actually recovered a lotus garden. Uh, with native lotuses, which, you know, uh, boggles my mind. I watched this process over 20 years of failures, and then one day I was driving by and I saw them and I saw the flowers. So I, I wonder how easy or difficult it would be to do that in, let's say, a Zone 6 climate. I think I was in Zone 7 then. Well, I'd have to say I don't know. I don't have uh, any experience growing lotuses um, because I don't have a pond. I, I wish I did. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
but they are the most beautiful plants and and I would love to know more about that. Well, yeah, I mean every but we are all um determined by how much room we have. And I know for a fact after doing this show for 30 years the smaller the space that people are living in or who have outside their homes, the more they want to grow things. And it's like this primal need we have uh, to have plants around. So if you can grow beautifully scented ones, you know, that's doing double duty. Right. Um, To be able to have a moon garden on a terrace or a, a rooftop is, It's actually achievable, even a balcony or a window box. You know, because because I just mentioned, you know, I'm in zone six. Um, Depending on the density of your neighborhood in Brooklyn, you may be kissing a zone seven because in the heat of the cities, um, you can gain a zone, so to speak, and cheat a little bit and in gardening cheaters always win definitely yeah it feel it can feel very subtropical in brooklyn um and we um actually there's a, there's a magnolia in uh, i live in a co-op building and recently the board planted a magnolia grandiflora in our front garden which i was really excited about and it actually has a couple of buds on it like it's about to open um but it and some bulbs are popping up around since we've had some warmer days which is always a little uh alarming but <laughs> it is <laughs> it can get warm here absolutely yeah and you know all bets are off when you get into the heat sink of a city now we got to get to um, some of my favorite plants here, and you got to tell me some of yours. The first thing I latched onto was evening primrose because it has um, a great hardiness designation, uh, zones four to nine. Yes, that's one of my reasons uh, for loving this plant as well. A lot of these night-blooming plants are tropical, like you mentioned, but this one is native and hardy in zone four to nine. And uh, it also has lovely pale yellow cup-shaped flowers with a, a sweet lemon scent too. And it attracts both night pollinating moths, but also birds and butterflies during the day. Yeah, and you mentioned it's a biennial. Um, so the first year, it's going to grow a rosette and develop the strength for flowering the second year. So people should know that. I mean, if you're going to do this seriously, uh, shouldn't you be planting a fresh crop every year so you don't have to eat the rosette year anymore? Well, once you get through that initial stretch, um, the it, it like naturalizes very quickly. So I think that there will always be some in bloom. Um, it's also easy to grow from seed. So you can um, 
you can start it. Well, I would say you want to plant the seeds where you want them to grow, um, but you could also start them in a pot and then transplant them later in the fall. Um, but they do spread quite rapidly on their own once they get going. Right, because they self-seed very readily. Right. Um, Citron Daylily. I mean, just the name smells good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's cool to have a night-blooming daylily. Um, it's a little fun fact. Um, and they typically open at sunset in June and July, and their flowers are yellow uh citron and they have a honeysuckle fragrance that is really lovely and very pronounced in the evening um and then that fragrance does fade in the morning and this plant will grow anywhere you got it rated for zones three to nine right very hardy yeah i mean um i think that takes care of just about everything and then we come upon a section on house plants for the evening. Um, and um, I guess um, what are, what would you call easy grow night blooming house plants? Uh, queen of the night, maybe? Definitely queen of the night. Um, and there are a lot of cacti that bloom at night that you can grow indoors as houseplants. Um, the zigzag cactus and even dragon fruit on a smaller scale you can grow indoors. Um, all of these plants just need a good amount of full sun, six hours I would say of sun a day is preferable, especially if you want them to produce flowers and their flowers especially the queen of the night cactus, they're some of the most exquisite flowers you'll ever see. And probably because they're so exquisite, they only uh, bloom for one night a year. So oh, really you got to be location. there. You have to be there. You cannot ever You can't go on go vacation. vacation. <laughs> you better not, no. <laughs> hey, nice to have you back. Boy, your yard smelled great last night. Seriously. <laughs> um, uh, there's a hedge in Honolulu that's covered in the uh, dragon fruit cactus. And it's said that one night a year, you know, tourists and locals all gather to watch the flowers bloom. And it's a really magical event. Ah, and it's 24 degrees here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> now, exactly. Yeah. Still in that, you have a, a a very thorough house plant section, um, which may be a factor of of your living in Brooklyn or Manhattan or even Center City, Philly, or other places like that, where you don't have any outdoor space, but you want to grow a hundred different things. Um, one thing that caught my eye, because we've been discussing this a lot on the show lately, is the snake plant or mother-in-law's tongue. Um, 
some of our Facebook people have been sending us pathetic pictures of their snake plant with uh, the leaves all drooping over the edge. Oh, what can I do? I water it correctly. And as soon as somebody says that, I know they've killed it with water somehow. And it's like I have to tell them I have two snake plants that are alive since college, which is a long time ago. And (laughs) I can absolutely say with certainty that there were two years where they did not get watered. They were part of a huge... Uh, platform at the edge of my dining room where they were engulfed by other plants and I kind of forgot about them and boy did they look happy (laughs) yeah they they almost thrive on neglect Um, and they're the kind of plant that you really don't have to worry about if you're traveling or um, working very long hours I remember um, in 2020 a lot of people left the city at the beginning of COVID. And when they returned, say a year later, they were calling me and telling me about how the snake plants that they had gotten from me were still alive. And so were some of their ZV plants. And those were the only two plants that had survived. And uh, I hope you told them that's because you weren't there to kill them. Exactly. They're so resilient. Um, They're great to have in all of the different uh, varieties because they have so many beautiful different kinds of colorations. And believe it or not, they actually produce flowers. That's um, why I brought it up. I'm looking at that page right now. And I didn't mark up your book. I don't I hate to write in books. But in this case, instead of a sticky note, I wrote, it blooms. Right. It blooms um, in the afternoon. And it's funny because actually I have heard a couple of stories that it blooms when you are on vacation. Uh, one from my sister who was really disappointed she missed it. But her friend who was watering for her sent pictures. Um, but they're lovely little flowers. And... It just needs enough sun in order to flower. But um, snake plants are also great for lower light spaces. So they're really worthwhile, even if uh, they're not getting full sun. They are great for, like, you know, basement apartments, garden apartments. <laughs> Dungeons. Or... <laughs> Dungeons. Solitary <laughs> confinement. They don't care. Exactly. Well, um... yeah, they're great. Okay, so you've given me an assignment. I gotta, I gotta re, um, re what? I gotta research. That's it. Boy, the brain is getting old. I have to research <laughs> how to get these puppies to bloom. I got two of them. Um, but before we let you go, I mean, and I, I want to emphasize that the book is not just a list of plants. I mean, you connect moon gardens with Rudolf Steiner and the biodynamic uh, organic gardening movement and the importance of the moon in planting and even observing um, your nighttime garden, um, connections with the moon festival 
and even mooncakes, which I love. Um, and and uh, just what the various stages of the moon mean. I mean, this is a pretty thorough book. Um, is there anything you'd like to mention that I haven't gotten to? Thank you. Um, just that, as you were saying, there are um, journal prompts in the book that, where the phase of the moon is an opportunity to think about different phases and patterns in your own life and that the book has meditations and rituals that invite you to think about the spiritual power of the moon. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot in there. Yeah, and you've, you'll give a happy reader a lot to think about. Um, we're talking to Yuama Osofsky, author of the brand new book, Moon Garden, A Guide to Creating an Evening Oasis. It is just out from Chronicle Books, and uh, I hope a lot of people go out and buy it. Thank you so much. I hope so, too. It's <laughs> a <bet>. great gift. <laughs> it is. It is. And um, there's not a lot of time left between Christmas and when this show will air, but there's just enough that if you get on it right away, you may be able to get it before Christmas. Certainly, if you go out and buy a bookstore. Remember bookstores? I used to love those <laughs> places. <laughs> yep, I love bookstores, too. All right. Yoama, thank you very much for being on You Bet Your Garden today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody out there that the greatest gift you can give is the gift of nutritious food and safe shelter. But don't go writing that check to your local food bank and organizations that help keep people in need housed and warm just yet. Because we'll be right back with how to keep your holiday plants alive or at least useful and a story featuring a garden gnome. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling holiday episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in the Christmas city of Bethlehem today, we continue our special holiday fair with a garden gnome story, which is also from Green Prince, the Weeder's Digest, but this time it's an audio version read by the former editor, Pat Stone, and his wonderful wife, Becky. It's called The Harry Bogart, and it'll be followed by the question of the week. I think this is seasonal, and I hope you do too. The Harry Bogart, a new... British folktale. 
by Andrew Norman, read by Becky and Pat Stone. Once there was a lady who was determined to grow her own vegetables to feed her young family. She had no space at home, so went to her local allotment to ask about a plot. No plots free now, the gray-haired man told her. Shall we put you on the waiting list? How long is the waiting list, she asked. He shrugged. Ten years? Maybe fifteen? That wasn't any good at all. My children will be grown up by then. She looked around in despair at all the pristine plots of vegetables. Then she spied one solitary plot that was overgrown with weeds. What about that plot, she asked. That looks empty. That plot? That's the Harry Bogart's plot. You don't want that one. But is it free? Can I have it now? He snorted. <laughs> don't say I didn't warn you. The lady worked and worked on her plot, digging and weeding and preparing the soil. Just as she had it ready to start planting vegetables, a small hairy creature appeared in front of her. It jumped up and down and laughed. I am the hairy Bogart. This plot is my home, and I will eat everything you grow. Oh, said the lady. Have you been eating well these last few years? The Bogart stopped laughing and looked cross. Now, not since the last one of you left. I'm sick of dandelions and buying weed. Well, if you want me to grow some nice vegetables to eat, you'll have to let me keep some of them. Otherwise, I'll just let it go back to weeds. The Bogart looked even grumpier at that. He gnashed his teeth and tugged at his ears. But eventually, he agreed. Half, then. Half each. The lady spat on her hand and they shook on it. Which half would you like? Above the ground or below the ground? Above, said the Bogart after a moment. And make sure I get some raspberries. The Bogart disappeared to wherever he had come from, and the lady went back to work, turning the barren plot into a lush trove of edible treasure. He only reappeared when the first vegetables were ready to harvest. He spun around on the spot and wagged his long tongue in excitement. I am back to claim my share of the harvest. What have you grown for me? How nice to see you, said the lady. I hope you like what I've done with the plot. There are my potatoes, carrots, parsnips. They won't be ready for a while yet, of course. Beetroot? onions, radishes, and there is the raspberry cane you asked for. She pointed at the solitary raspberry plant in one corner. The Bogart turned bright pink, the color starting in his toes and moving all the way up to the tips of his ears. You haven't grown anything above the ground. That's not true, the lady objected indignantly. I grew the raspberries you asked for, and all the leaves are above the ground. Don't you like leaves? I've heard beetroot leaves are very nutritious. The Bogart was hopping around on one foot and hooting with anger. Where are the peas, the sugar snaps, the lettuce, strawberries, gooseberries, broccoli? What sort of a gardener are you? 
Now the lady looked crestfallen. I'm sorry. I am quite new to this, you see, and I don't know how to grow those fancy things. I'm just learning to grow root vegetables to feed my children, and I asked for help with the raspberry plant just for you. The Bogart was partly mollified. I will eat your leaves then, but next year I will take my half from under the ground. A year passed. The lady kept working away on her plot and roasting her root vegetables all the way through the winter and the next spring. When she next saw the Bogart, it was the height of summer once more. Hello! She greeted him with excitement. Look at the progress I've made. I've learned so much since I last saw you. Now I'm growing all those things you said and more. Runner beans, French beans, sweet corn, cabbages, courgette, pumpkins, tomatoes, blackberries. Did you know you can grow them without the thorns? She trailed off at his expression. Where are the root vegetables? said the Bogart quietly. Oh, I'm not growing those anymore. The lady laughed. <laughs> we had all had our fill of them by the end of winter. The Bogart sat down and poured dirt over his head until he was almost buried. No, 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 no! I don't want to eat bean roots. He did a somersault in frustration, then picked up a bamboo cane from the runner beans and drew a line down the middle of the allotment. This half of the allotment is mine, he pointed. This half is yours. Above the ground, below the ground, it doesn't matter. I will see you next year, and I expect to be fed. When he returned the following year, the allotment had come a long way. The lady had built a small shed to keep her tools. She had a deep and productive compost heap, a large comfrey plant for fertilizer, and a rich bed of wildflowers that were humming with bees and other pollinators. She also had a muddy play area containing two children working hard on a mud pie. On the other half of the allotment were all kinds of fruit and vegetables growing above and below the ground. When the Bogart saw the contents of his half of the allotment, his shoulders slumped in despair. He opened his mouth to speak, but had nothing to say. The lady looked at the Bogart and spoke. I have a new deal for you. You can have whichever vegetables you like from any part of this allotment. At this, the Bogart perked up. I'll show you how to cook them so that they are tender and delicious, and how to store them so they are still good to eat in winter. Now he was weary. And how will you trick me this time? There is no trick. All I ask is that you help. My back is getting sore from all that digging, and I can't get anything done if no one is entertaining the children. And so the Bogart helped. He could always turn a crying toddler into a laughing one. And he was so low to the ground that weeding and planting came easily. He was a quick learner, too. For years, he and the lady worked on the allotment together, 
and made it one of the most productive plots around, as well as one of the happiest. The children grew up and were there less often, but still appeared from time to time to help their mother in the Bogart. But then, one year, the lady unexpectedly moved away. Family reasons, people had heard, and most didn't want to risk inquiring further. The name at the top of the waiting list received an email that there was a plot available. He had put his name down as a young man at around the same time as the lady who had left, and was not quite so young anymore. He was met at the gates by the same man he had spoken to years before, whose hair was now more white than gray, but who otherwise looked much the same. That plot, is it? The younger man nodded at the recently vacated plot, still perfectly clear and cared for. That's the plot that's come up, but it's not the one you're getting. The man snorted at the thought. Ha! You can take my old plot. That's the Harry Bogart's plot, and I'm having it. As promised, it is time for the question of the week. After holiday, holiday plant care. Now, this show is going to first air on Christmas Eve Eve, which is the opposite of the mischief night that precedes Halloween. If you aren't on your best behavior tonight, you probably never will be. Anyway, many homes will be filled with what lots of people consider to be temporary plants. By the time the new year arrives, Tropicals like poinsettias will typically be tossed outside to enter the big sleep, from which they will not magically reawaken in the spring. Of course, this assumes that you didn't already kill them by leaving them outdoors in cold weather. Cut Christmas trees that were once live will be tossed to the curb, hopefully to be picked up by waste management engineers who will put them to good use, like the creation of those artificial reefs that are so helpful these days. Before the wind turns them into tinsel-covered tumbleweeds rolling towards downtown. It does not have to be. Cut Christmas trees, poinsettias, amaryllis, and Christmas tree-shaped evergreens can have a second life, and maybe even a third or fourth. But first, a word about paper whites. A member of the Narcissus family, like daffodils, paper whites are a popular holiday gift, scenting the air with the most god-awful stench of a, quote, fragrant plant I have ever encountered. Yeah, the pretty white flowers are pretty. And when gifted in full bloom, the little bulbs will often arrive in an attractive little planter, that can and should be used after the holidays for something that doesn't make you open up every window in the house. Luckily, paper whites are true one-time wonders. That means you can compost or even toss them after their flowers fade guilt-free, as most of our summers aren't nearly hot enough to perennialize them. Yeah, you can try to carry them over in very high-numbered USDA zones, but I advise against it, as they have, quote, naturalized in parts of California and Texas, 
a more terrifying invasive plant I can hardly imagine. Amaryllis are different. These big, beautiful bulbs can reliably return for many decades, as my sister-in-law Maureen has proven with a dime store bulb I gifted her sometime in the last millennia. If you receive your amaryllis new in a kit, just follow the instructions. The flowers probably won't appear for several weeks, but you can fix that timing in subsequent years. And besides, what's so bad about having big, beautiful blooms appear during the gloomiest months of the year? When those flowers fade, clip off the top half of the stalk, but leave the green leaves intact. Give them as much sun as possible during their indoor winter stay. Treat them to a gentle feeding of a dilute solution of an organic houseplant fertilizer or a dilute dose of warm tea or an inch of warm castings or finished compost on top of the soil. Note, always feed bulbs after their flowers have faded, not when you plant them. Around midsummer, Clip off the hopefully brown leaves and move the container to a cool, dark spot with good air circulation. In September, bring the pot back out, give it one substantial watering, and place it in a bright, directly sunny spot. If you do this right, you will soon see green leaves emerging. At this point, give it another gentle feeding, water sparingly, and it should bloom again during the holidays. Repeat this procedure every year. Poinsettias. Many years ago, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico admired a beautiful tropical vine and had a specimen brought back to the States where it was exhibited at the very first Philadelphia Flower Show in 1829. Over the years, the plant was bred into an upright shape and heavily pruned to become the Christmas plant we know today. As with many tropicals and subtropicals, the poinsettia is a non-hardy perennial that can be cared for as a house plant in the winter, but enjoys being taken outside in the summer. Remove and discard the foil wrapping and place the pot in a sink containing a few inches of water for an hour or so. Then let it drain, position it on a saucer or plate, to protect surfaces and water very sparingly over the winter. Give it the brightest light you can, as there is generally not a lot of light in the winter. Take it outside when temps stay reliably in the 50s. Repotting is advised, as these plants are generally sold in really crappy soil. If you live below the frost line, plant it. Otherwise, move it to a bigger pot. Feed and water lightly over the summer, but keep it in dappled shade, as poinsettias are understory plants in the wild. Bring it in before frost, unpruned, and show holiday guests what a real poinsettia looks like. Or prune it topiary style constantly over the summer, if you're a determined traditionalist. Cut Christmas trees. Remove any ornaments, especially tinsel. What were you thinking, tinsel? 
empty the water reservoir with a turkey baster, lay a tarp on the floor, lay the tree on the tarp, and carry it out of the house bottom end first. Then set it up somewhere on your property where you can easily see bird activity. Then hang suet feeders on the tree, no bird seed please, to attract those birds and enjoy the show. Well, that sure was a thorough look at how to handle leftover holiday plants. Now, wasn't it? Unfortunately, the question of the week is currently, as of mid-December, missing in transit on its way to its new home at Gurney's, G-U-R-N-E-Y-S dot com. Gurney's is a longtime Gardens Alive affiliate. So if this week's information isn't up at Gurney's by the time you hear this show, please visit the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page, where we'll keep you informed and post a link to our post-holiday plant care directions. Yikes, my producer is threatening to abduct my amaryllis if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444, or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location. You'll find all of our contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, audio and video of previous shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is an hour-long public radio show and podcast produced and delivered to you every week from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath, Mike McGrath was created when his parents gave him his first set of plastic dinosaurs for Christmas in 1960. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. And our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Keep up with the current whereabouts of the question of the week and peruse pretty pictures of our Facebook friends' perky plants at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Jasmine Griffin. Our festive audio editor is the lovely Jonas Bowen. Our suspicious associates... Zach the Tack Wisniewski and Ducky the Dancing Duck wish you the happiest of holidays, as does our beloved and beleaguered CEO, Tim Fallon. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I'll be recovering from a massive tryptophan hangover and dodging dropped Christmas tree needles until I can see you again next week. Hey, hey, whose bright idea was it to put a green carpet in the living room? <laughs> <laughs>